Hello everyone, I'm Pastor Rick Hawkins of Quest Church in Norman, Oklahoma. I want to thank you all for joining us today. This podcast is going to be informative, insightful, and inspirational for your life. Listen every week because we'll have a special word just for you. Luke chapter 5, verse 1. So it was, as the multitude pressed about Jesus to hear the word of God, they pressed about him to hear the word of God. And he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him, put out a little from the land. And he sat down, Jesus sat down in the boat and taught the multitudes from the boat. Verse 4, when he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered him and said, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when he had done this, they caught a great number of fish and their net was breaking. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that both boats began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, get away from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed Jesus. We will take our text from verse 5, starting verse 4. Jesus tells them, Launch into the deep and cast your nets. And Simon's response was, We toiled all night. We didn't catch anything. Nevertheless, at your word we'll talk for a few minutes on that topic nevertheless at your word dear heavenly father we feel you in the building we came for you we didn't come for the music we didn't come for the words we didn't come for the people we love them all but God we came for you we ask that you do your work this morning God I thank you that you make your word come alive to us And I pray that you would do that this morning for each of us. You know what we came in here needing. You know what the person watching is needing this morning. So I pray that, God, that the flesh that is around this spirit of mine, God, that you would just break it down and push it away and get it off this stage. And, God, let your spirit do its work. That you'd speak clearly and let that seed of your word go into the hearts of men and do its work. I thank you for your word today. And God, no matter what's going on in my life, I say this, nevertheless, at your word, I will obey. I love you. I give you praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Can you put your hands together one more time? Give God praise. You may be seated. This past Friday, Pastor Rick spoke at uh, Eternal Life Church there in Marlow, Oklahoma at a men's meeting, and and he started his message like this and so I I thought it was a good way to start so I'm just gonna ride on his coattails for a minute (laughs) the Bible is not a book a book of fiction the Bible is not a book of fiction Um, it is real it is a book of truth the stuff in this Bible actually happened that actually came to pass I think a lot of times we get caught in that I don't know if you want to call it a syndrome or a mindset. When we read the word, uh, we read it without the proper context that this thing is real. And because it's a story and because it's being written and because it was so many years ago, 
um, it's easy to miss the details that are interwoven into what's going on or you know this is a text that we just read but to have proper understanding you have to understand the context uh, I heard a preacher say recently that text without context is dangerous uh, an example is you can take a short clip of somebody's video and make them look like a bad person but if you actually heard the context behind what they were saying, you'd understand they never said nothing wrong to begin with. Context is important. The Bible is a real book. And I think it's important to understand who wrote this text. Luke is the writer. Luke is a doctor. He's a historian. Some believe, many believe, I think I agree, that he also wrote the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a book that tells the history of the apostles and the launching of the Christian church and how the Holy Ghost took over. And the interesting thing about the book of Acts is it never really comes to an end, which, which tells us that we are still living in the book of Acts. Amen. Amen. I believe we can still see signs and wonders. I believe that we can still look at that mountain, tell it to be removed and cast into the sea, and it has to obey because of our faith. Amen. So he writes this book, and right at the beginning of Luke, uh, in those first few verses, he explains that he is writing this, this text. If, if you go back to Luke chapter 1 and just read those first four verses, you'll see that he's writing this. And I want to read his words. He said, I'm writing this in order, most excellent Theophilus. He's talking to Theophilus, that thou mightest know the certainty of these things. The certainty of the things that happened in this book wherein you've been taught. In other words, I want you to know that what I'm sharing with you is real. I want you to know that this actually happened. And it's interesting that he names Theophilus. Theophilus. Theophilus' name literally means friend of God. And so many believe he wasn't writing to anybody at all because nobody can find Theophilus in the, hist in the history books. So they think that maybe Luke was addressing you and me. That he was just writing to those that believed in the Lord and were Christian and were following the ways of God and was saying, listen, I wrote this so that you'd know that this really happened. And so he sets it up. He sets it up. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, and we're right at the beginning of the book of Luke, Luke chapter 4. So when Jesus arrives on the scene, on what scene? On the scene of this earth, there had been 400 years where God had been silent. They call the, the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament the intertestament period. And they call it that or identify it at all because God had been quiet for 400 years. 400 years. So as Jesus arrives on the scene, God hadn't spoken anything recently. As a matter of fact, God, everybody alive had not ever heard him for themselves. They had only heard tales of what God had done. They had only heard tales of what God had said. I, I liken that to our generation. When I, when I talk to my kids about some of the things I experienced, I'm only 44 years old, and when I tell them about some of the things I experienced, they're like, that really happened, Dad? Yeah, I saw it happen in the sanctuary of God's house. Some of you remember the things that happened in the tent meetings with Oral Roberts and R.W. Schambach and when Catherine Coleman's ministry was alive. We've seen those things. But there's a whole generation that doesn't even know that that exists. They think they're just trying to live a more happy, abundant life. And, and God wants us to have that. But there's so much more than that. There's so much more than that. And so when Jesus arrives on the scene, they hadn't heard from God. For 400 years. And we know that the word of God is the foundation upon which all existence has been built. It was when God spoke that creation came alive. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that the very foundations of the earth came about because they were framed by the word of God. In Hebrews 1.3 and Colossians 1.7 we know that all things are held together by the word. Of God. Deuteronomy 8 3, and Jesus again later in Matthew, he, he recites this verse But man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. In other words, we need bread to live, but we need his word just as much. We need his bread to live, but we need to hear from God. Can I get an amen? 
And so after all these years, the Lord is quiet. 800 years. It's amazing that God would allow that to happen. Knowing that man cannot live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. God had a pattern of doing this. Every time the people of God in the Old Testament would kind of go off to the left or get bent or whatever, he'd be quiet for a minute, let them go through a little something, and then he'd come back and save them. Kind of like me and you. Get a little bent and call on God, and then he fixes it. But what do you do when you call on God and it doesn't seem like he shows up? Scary moment. It's a test of faith, amen? So when Jesus arrives on the scene, I like the way John writes it. In the beginning was the Word. So after 400 years of quiet, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So God doesn't just speak after 400 years. He doesn't just say something after 400 years. He doesn't just send a messenger after 400 years. He doesn't send a prophet after 400 years. He sends his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, the child, the, the, the child of God isn't just Jesus. It's the word. And it comes alive in flesh. And so when Jesus steps onto earth, I can feel the earth maybe rumble a little bit because the last time it felt it that close, it heard God's voice say, light, be, and it had to respond. Because when God's word goes forth, it has to accomplish the purpose for which it was sent, Isaiah 55, 11, and the earth has to respond to it. It's a picture of our lives. We were made from the dust of the earth. And God's creating a picture for us that when he speaks, there's an expectation for the earth, for us to respond. And here's the word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. And that word was the light of men, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's showing us that he can be right here in our midst he can be right here on us, in us, and we can work in it. Isn't that a pretty picture? Thank God for it. Thank God for it. So he arrives. He arrives, and he's here. And it's interesting, if you read the book of Luke, and the way, you know, Luke is a historian, like I said. So the way he uh, draws out his book is he's telling you the story, and he's trying to lay it out in chronological order. And it's interesting because those first three chapters don't have much detail. Just shows us a few things. We see God, uh, we see Jesus being born. We see the, the, you know, the angels and the wise men and this, that, and the other. And, and then we see Jesus at 12, right? And he's in the, um, the temple. And he's stumping all the doctors and the priests that are in there. He's, they're like, how can a boy 12 years old speak like this? Little do they know that was the word. Right, right, right. And so we know he was being educated in the things of God and the customs of God's people because he was in the temple and, and he was smart enough to make them think they were silly. You know, that's a big deal. And he was only 12 years old. So we see that. And then all of a sudden, we skip way ahead and, and here's John the Baptist. Here's John the Baptist. Stay with me. I'm trying to give you context to our text. The interesting thing about John the Baptist, in my opinion is that we see revival happening among God's people, or at least beginning to happen. We see a spiritual resurgence happening among the people of God in this moment. The reason I say that is because he's out in the wilderness, and he's declaring the word of God and baptizing people, and somehow people are coming out of the town to see this crazy man that eats locusts with honey, I don't know. I've seen some of them locust shells around here lately. I ain't touching that. <laughs> and he's eating that with honey, and he's out there baptizing folks, and he's preaching hope. There is one coming after me. The interesting thing about John is it was Jesus' cousin. And so we see revival beginning to spark those embers 
a, a flame beginning to turn into a flame. Why? Because here's what ha- here's you know we pray for revival and we declare revival and we want to see God do a thing. But here's the thing: it's not enough to have a word for revival. We can come in here and prophesy it all we want. We can come in here and and pray for it all we want. We could have intercessory uh, meeting after prayer meeting, after intercessory meeting, after healing service, after whatever, and we're not going to see revival because revival has to meet hungry people. The word and hungry people, when they come together, you see fire happen. So why does God wait 400 years to give his word because he needed them hungry enough to receive the word. And so here's Jesus. And he arrives on the scene. So one morning, Jesus always finds himself on a beach somehow. That's the life I want. <laughs> get on the beach and teach <laughs> and he shows up in the morning and we know it's morning because Simon told him you know we've been toiling all night long so if they were toiling all night long I'm certain they didn't just keep on toiling to the next day right so it's morning time and, and here comes Jesus and Jesus is in Capernaum Jesus is in Capernaum. Now, how, how do we know he's in Capernaum? Because in the previous chapter, he had uh, launched his ministry, right? He's 30 years old, and he launches his ministry, and he's in Nazareth, and he's in the synagogue, and he sits down for to read, and he opens up uh, the book of Isaiah, and he says, and he, and he just declares his mission. He declares his mission, right? But Nazareth doesn't receive him. They say, isn't this Joseph's son? Don't we know this guy right here? I want to pause there. We have a very healthy church. When I look at our church, I see people that are strong Christians, strong people of faith. They have history. They have something behind them. Roots. We've been in this thing a minute. And then I see people who have been delivered from a lot. And they have an intense love for God. I want to caution everybody. Be careful with familiarity. Be careful you don't get too used to God. Be careful you don't get too used to church. Because familiarity is a very dangerous, fatal thing. If you get too familiar with the things of God, they just become commonplace to you. So your reverence and fear of them begin to dwindle. Once it becomes familiar, you can take it for granted. It's not as important. It's not a priority. And so it's not what it should be in your life. And that's what Nazareth did. Isn't this Joseph's son? What they were doing was condescending to him because the way they saw it is that wasn't a virgin's baby. That was, that was a, a boy born out of wedlock right there. So they were, they were trying to condescend to him. And they were saying, you don't have no right to be like that and to say that about yourself. Don't you hate haters like that? You go out there and you say, I am who God said I am. And they say, well, yeah, well, I saw you last night, so you ain't that much. You might have done whatever you did last night, but that don't change what God said you are. Like Pastor Rick said on Friday night, we are not human doings. We are human beings. We are human beings. I'm getting off track here. And so they're being familiar. Just because you've been around it, just because you have experienced it, doesn't give you the right to minimize its power and position in any given moment. Don't take church for granted. Don't take the preached word for granted. Don't take the written word for granted. Don't take the preacher for granted. Don't take your pastor for granted. Does this church need that admonition? No, not at all, but it's always good to hear it. 
It's always good to hear it. Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they that labor in the word and doctrine. And, and Paul's writing to Timothy to tell him that because he's showing him how valuable the word is. We need that word. So being rejected at home in Nazareth, he goes to Capernaum. Capernaum is a place of comfort. That's its actual definition. I'm building something here, so stay with me. So he's in Capernaum, and he's there, and he does miracles there, and, and he's already been doing some stuff, so he's got himself comfortable. As a matter of fact, the day before, or, or the chapter before, he had done a miracle in Simon's life. He had gone to Simon's house. His mother-in-law was sick almost unto death, and he heals her, and then after that, he heals some more, and then they're looking for Jesus because they don't know where he went, and he slipped out on them, and he, they find him, and he says, look, we got a lot of work to do. I don't know what y'all are doing up in the house. We already had that miracle. Let's move past the miracle and get some more work done. That's a good lesson for somebody. Don't just settle in on your miracle. You got to keep going. You got to keep going. And so he's in Capernaum. And Jesus chooses to make his residence there. And fame goes around all this place. And everybody knows about Jesus. And all of a sudden this morning, he shows up on a beach in Capernaum. And how could he have drawn such a large crowd in the morning? I don't know about you. I'm not looking for that in the morning unless it's Sunday morning. But he draws this crowd. Why? Because they were curious. Because they were hungry. Because in their lifetime, they had never heard it like this. For some of them in their lifetime, they had never heard it. And here's Jesus. They had never experienced. They needed hope. Because hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hopelessness is anticipated defeat. Today, there is an all-out attack on hope in our generation. Hope is being lost across the board. There is no expectation that I can be better. There is no expectation that I can grow. There is no expectation that God's going to actually do it. Why? Because there's a pandemic. God's going to bring revival out of the pandemic. We come out of the pandemic, church houses don't fill back up. As a matter of fact, they're still not filling back up. So where is the move of God? No, we'd rather sit in our houses and watch him on screens. What, what, what's going on? People are beginning to be hopeless because they're familiar with the things of God. They don't believe that he'll actually do it. They haven't heard it for themselves. They haven't experienced it for themselves. Romans 15.3 said, now, now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. You have to believe that you will abound in hope. What is hope? What is hope? Hope is desire met with expectation. Hope is desire met with expectation. I don't just have a desire that God's going to do a thing in my life. I have an expectation that God's going to do in my, in, a thing in my life. There's nothing worse than hopelessness. Than having a desire that God will do something, but your expectation is that he won't. Hope is desire met with expectation. And faith is the action behind hope. Faith is the action behind hope. Because faith is not a belief system. Faith is an action. Faith is an action. That's why uh, the Bible tells us, uh, you know, uh, um, um, what does it say? And these three remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is? And the Bible also tells us that God is love. Faith and hope belong to me and you. He does the rest. He does the rest. He does the rest. So these people, they're crowding Jesus because they have a sense of hopelessness. And for the first time in their life, there's a glimmer of hope. And they're gathering around him. And, and verse 1 tells us that they're gathering around him because they want to hear a word from him. They want to hear a word from him. So he does whatever he has to do to give them the opportunity to see him so that they can hear him. So he gets on a boat and he asks Simon. Simon's washing his net. He's been out all night fishing. He's immensely disappointed and probably grumpy. If we know Peter, we know he's mouthy right now. 
And he's washing his nets. What it means is he's done. We're done. Today, we're done. We're cleaning this up. We're going to the house, getting a meal, hitting the bed. That's what we're doing. Might watch a show on Netflix, but basically going to sleep. He's tired. And Jesus gets in his boat. His boat's probably all tidied up. It's probably docked perfectly. He's got his net. He's cleaning it up. He's about to fold it and put it back in the the boat. I have to believe that he put it back in the boat because it was in the boat when Jesus told him to launch out to the deep. So he's probably all done. And he's like, great. Jesus showed up. So now I got to wait till he's done. Just want to go home. Have you ever felt like that? You've given it all you got. You've done all you can do. It didn't work out. You're not saying you won't do it again. You're just saying it ain't going to be today. You prayed and you prayed. And you fasted. And you prayed. And you didn't get the outcome you wanted. So you just said, I'll fold it up and pick it up tomorrow. Because I'm hungry. And I'm done praying. And that's where Peter's, and, and Jesus tells him, get in the boat. Just put it out a little bit so these people can see me. They need to hear me. I think it's interesting because um, Jesus, I mean, Luke, he's writing this story, and he never tells us what Jesus taught. He just says that he taught. Right? And so I can kind of see all the people there. And he's in the boat, and it's not like the boat helped him amplify his voice. I mean, there's an argument that the water was there and the sound waves went on the water. But no, that didn't help. I don't believe that. I just believe Jesus' voice was so strong that they had no choice but to hear him. They just needed to be able to see him. And so because they saw him, they could hear him. You know, side note, Jesus' voice is so strong that the grave even has to listen. I don't have this in my notes, but when Jesus went, uh, 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 Lazarus was sick unto death, he tells him he's sick unto death, and and his disciples aren't getting it. He goes, hey, he died. He died. And they're like, well, then why are we going? He said, he might have died, but nevertheless, we're going to go see him. Right? Isn't that good? Side note, has nothing to do with this. So he's teaching, and there's this crowd, and all it says, all it says is that he stopped teaching. He stopped talking. And he looks at Simon. Right? So he gets in the boat, tells Simon to push it away so he can teach the people a little bit. And he looks, and, he's, and, and the Bible's real clear. He said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets. God will gather a crowd just to get to you. God will gather a multitude just to get your attention. I work in ministry full time. I have for, I think, 24 years now. Full time. Been my living. It's my occupation. It's what I do. It's really, 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 really easy to get familiar with the house of God. It's really, really, really easy to get familiar with church. It's automatic. I've literally been in thousands of church services at this point in my life. I know how it works. I know when it's not working, right? I come up in here, um, you know, dazed and confused and still somehow make it look like I'm okay. (laughs) Sometimes, I don't know. My point is this, that... I, I kind of get Simon here. I love Jesus, but right now I just want to go home. And I have to believe that the reason Simon didn't just put Jesus off right there is because he saw the crowd. And he felt compelled to help. I can't bail out on him right now. I can't bail out on him right now. Do you know... That's why we gather every Sunday morning. And that's why you try to go every opportunity you can. Because you don't even know sometimes when you really need it. You don't even know. And you show up with the crowd. And you're, you're, you're in the middle of church. Some of you are doing it right now. You're thinking about what's for lunch. 
Next week, you're going to be thinking about who's, what the first game is I'm going to catch. But we have something else on our mind, and then all of a sudden, God just shows up and slaps you in the face. And he said, I didn't come for all them. I just wanted you here. I just wanted you here. And so he says to Simon, let down your nets. Launch out into the deep. And, or launch out into the deep and let down your nets. And I think it's interesting because Peter says we've toiled. We've been working our butts off all night. That's what it means to toil. It literally means to labor or to grow exhausted, to labor with wearisome effort. I recently moved from one house to another. I was toiling. That's labor with wearisome effort. If you've ever moved before, you know what I'm talking about. Thank God for the old house. Thank God for the new house. But forget moving. They worked to work extremely hard. They had worked extremely hard. They did what they do, what they're skilled at, what they've probably been doing their whole life. James and John are named the sons of Zebedee even in this scripture. What is that telling you? That they, because that was Zebedee's boat. They were sons carrying on the family tradition of fishing. This was, their, this was their mode of making money. This is how they fed the community. This is how that happened. This is commerce at its best happening right here and look the, the, the economy was failing it was in recession because they missed the catch they worked I know I have felt like that in recent years I've worked my butt off and I don't see the reward right have you ever felt like that and so here he is God Jesus you want me to launch out into the deep and it's interesting that Jesus says launch out because he's telling them I want you to start all over again launch when you launch something that's something from the beginning right and what's crazy is he allowed them to get to the point where they would be perfectly prepared to start over they didn't just come to the end and say I quit they took the time to wash their nets because they said at some point I'm going to need this again. So he let them go through the whole experience. And they were, ju- they were ready just in time to start all over again. And so he tells them, launch out into the deep. You know, many are afraid to take this risk because they fear the same result. Yes. Many are afraid to start over again because they fear it's not going to happen. You get admonished by a man of God, a preacher, or maybe a covenant partner or somebody in your life. Try it again. And you're like, I don't know. I don't have the energy to try it again. I gave it everything I got. I put my whole life into it, and it didn't work. That's God telling me to put it up on the shelf. Is it, though? Is it, though? You've got to challenge yourself there. Jesus shows up and said, do it again. Try it again. Give it one more shot. You washed your net. You didn't throw your net away. It still can be used. He didn't give you the skill to wash it the right way for no reason. That isn't in you. You didn't grow up a fisherman so that you could end up being an accountant. No, God made you a fisherman. God gave you that skill. He deposited that strength in you. And just because you didn't get the outcome you wanted doesn't mean you can't do it again. Do it. Again, and, and so, you know, and I want to stop and, and say this. Some callings are more toilsome than others. Be careful with comparison. Don't look at somebody and see their positive results and say, I must be doing something wrong. That doesn't mean that. That doesn't mean that at all. Just because they're having good results and you're having bad results and you know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing and they're doing what they're supposed to be doing, you feel like you should be having the success that they have. You don't know that your calling might be a little more toilsome than their calling. And that's not about fair. That's just about that's your assignment. That do a lot of people in our culture a lot of good. Stop comparing to everybody else. It's your responsibility to take care of yourself. And just because your road's a little harder than my road and my road's a little harder than your road or whatever, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter about fair. It's not a, it has nothing to do with fair. That's just your lot in life. It's not my job to give you a handout just so that you can move on easier. Even though I paid for my responsibilities. I better be quiet. 
Jesus knew who he was talking to. Jesus was one of the most calculated people I've ever seen ever in history. He knew exactly who he was talking to. He was talking to Simon. He was talking to Simon. He wasn't talking to a Pharisee. A Pharisee is that guy that is pledged to the law and the strict law, right? And he's against the new, new things, the newfound uh, culture way of doing things. That's what a Pharisee is. We're strictly to the law. That's what we are. A Sadducee is a little different. Sadducee is different than a Pharisee. A Sadducee is going to be more inclined to adjust to culture, uh, adjust to them, and, and do whatever is politically correct in that genre. That's what a Sadducee is. Do your own study on it. But that's, if you ever want to know the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee, that's where that comes from. Because during the Syrian reign, during that 400 years of silence, Syrians governed Israel, and we got Sadducees. And the reason Sadducees came up is because they used the Jewish faith to try to adjust Jews to be more inclined to their political structure. Sorry for the history. That's the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee. He wasn't speaking to them. He wasn't speaking to a scribe. A scribe knew the word of God better than anybody else because they wrote it down over and over and over and over again. Kind of like us reading our memory verses over and over. He wasn't speaking to a scribe. He wasn't speaking to a rabbi, a teacher, a priest, a Levite, a pastor. He was speaking to Simon Peter, a cussing fisherman. Simon Peter, impetuous Peter, a little forward. A little brash, a little on your toes a little bit, a little in your face. Probably didn't take enough showers, this guy. Rambunctious, wild. He got nerve, he got grit, he's tough, he's rowdy. But he's the one that Jesus is eventually going to say upon this rock, I will build my church. So he knew who he was speaking to. He knew that Simon uh, Peter would be the one that was brave and always stood up for Jesus. And when they came to arrest him, he'd be the one to cut off the ear of the soldier because that's my Jesus. You don't mess with him. We need more faith people like that. Don't mess with my Jesus. He knew who he was talking to. He was talking to Simon Peter, and he knew Simon Peter had an affinity to the word. Why? Because he knew down the road when Jesus would preach a really hard truth and all his disciples were leaving him, he'd look at the 12 apostles and say, are you going to leave me too? And Peter's going to say, where are we going? Where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life he didn't say I love you so much I've been this far with you I have a relationship with you no he put the value on the word you have the words of eternal life he knew deep down inside Peter there was an affinity for God's word and that's who he was in the beginning was the word and he knew if he could get this guy's attention he needed to get Peter to a desperate place I believe Peter James and John were very wealthy men because they were fishermen in a fishing town, which means everybody got their fish from them, right? So I think they were wealthy men. And to get Peter, James, and John to follow him was going to be a tough task because people love that money. People love that. When you're living comfortably, people love that. People love that. And it was going to be hard to do it. So he had to catch Peter off guard. He knew who he was talking to. He waited till it was bad. See, what Peter didn't understand, he's telling the master by telling him, you know, we told all night, we didn't catch nothing. What he was telling him, without telling him, a lot of people do that. They'll tell you something without telling you something. It's up to you to read between the lines. Women are the best, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so he tells him, we told all night. What he's saying is, I'm the expert here. You're the rabbi, I'm the fisherman, and you want me to do this again? I'm the rabbi, uh, you're the rabbi, I'm the fisherman. I'm the expert. We didn't do good. We're not going to do good. It ain't even time to fish. It's time to go home. It ain't time to fish. It's the wrong time. We already did it. It ain't going to work. They're too deep. The fish are too deep. We ain't catching them. He's telling him that without telling him that. But he, he didn't know he was talking to the nautical genius of all time. Jesus made these fish. 
He's already sending out those signals we can't hear that's making all them fish come up. <laughs> His Garmin system's going off. His fish are coming up. And so he tells them, but, but, but Peter, he knew who he was talking to. He knew who he was talking to. And so, nevertheless, at your word. I almost feel like he was a little sarcastic right there. Nevertheless, if you say so. In other words, if we go out here when we don't catch anything, it's on you. And I'm going to hold this one. Right? Nevertheless, at your word. I don't mind doing this. I really don't. I wonder if he stood there looking at everybody before he even re responded to Jesus. Start over. Go deep. Start over. Go deep. Start over. Go deep. You can see the wheels turning in Peter's head. I've been pretty disappointed. I can make no money today. I may not enjoy my time at home when I tell the wife I didn't catch nothing. Certainly not in a good mood. Start over and go deep. Deep calls unto deep. You know why we have a hard time understanding that? Because it's deep. What God does in the deep is mysterious because that's what keeps us on our toes. If we're able to write every little script of our story, what good is that? Because there's a bunch we'd leave out. See, Peter needed this experience. He needed the, the loss. He needed the disappointment. We've toiled all night, but nevertheless, at your word. It was almost as if in the back of his mind, he's remembering his mother-in-law laying on her deathbed and Jesus healing. It's like he sees Jesus in the Capernaum region healing and setting people free and demons running. And he says, you know, anything could happen if I just do what this man says. If I just act on this word, anything might happen in my life nevertheless somebody say nevertheless it's a conjunction it's like the word and it's a conjunction so when I say a statement and I use the word and whatever's following the conjunction and is included in everything that was before the word and right um, nevertheless is a conjunction that's a lot like the word but where everything before the word but is canceled out just by that three-letter word, right? It's like, okay, did you see that brother today? Who are you talking about? Chief. Yeah, I saw Chief. Boy, that boy came in. He was wearing a clean suit. Hair was nice. Had them shades on. He looked good. But did you see that man's shoes? Right? What it does is it say, yeah, 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 but this is what we're really getting at. That's nevertheless. That means I was out all night working my butt off, giving it all I had. I toiled, I got nothing. I was disappointed. Nevertheless, in spite of all that, I'm going to do exactly what you said. In spite of the, what it looks like, I'm going to do it anyway. In spite of the disappointment I felt on my job, I'm coming in tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Despite all the losses I've experienced, I'm going to do it anyway because you told me it was going to be a success. So I'm waking up in the morning, and I'm going to do it one more time. I've tithed my money. I've given offerings. I've sacrificed. I've given the homeless. I've done my best, and I'm still struggling to pay my bills. 
Nevertheless, I'm still going to bring my tithe to church. Nevertheless, I'm still going to give to God because he's been good to me. And I know the promises of God are yes and amen. And so nevertheless, at your word. The great thing about these disciples, because it was all of them that did what Jesus said, is that they did it anyway. They didn't allow the disappointment of their night season to discourage them from the possibilities that the morning had to offer. What did I just tell you? Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. You might have been crying. You might have been working. You might have been slaving. You might have been messing up. You might have been losing. It don't matter. Nevertheless, I came by for one reason to tell you there's a word in the house today that says you have hope. There's a reward coming. Your, your breakthrough is just on the other side. You're going to win this battle. It may look like you're losing, but there's a secret weapon that God has hidden behind the veil just for you. Nevertheless, Nevertheless, shout it, nevertheless, nevertheless, say it like you have faith, nevertheless, 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 that devil can have a butt in his face as far as I'm concerned, what do I mean by that, that means that we can say all this but God, he can come at me with all he wants but God. I know what God said about me. He said I'm more than a conqueror. That's what he said about me. He said I'm above only and not belief. That's what God said about me. Nevertheless, at your word. He said I was blessed in the city. I was blessed in the field. I'm blessed when I come. I'm blessed when I go. Nevertheless, at his word. I might look broke, devil, but God. I am victorious. I am victorious. I am blessed. I am blessed. I am healed. No matter what the doctor says, the doctor might have a report. Whose report will you believe? I shall believe the report of the Lord. May not look good. Nevertheless, at his word, at his word, I'm trusting his word. I'm trusting his word. I'm trusting his word. Not my word, not your word, not the word of the news, not the word of the press. I'm Nevertheless, I worked hard on this. Nevertheless, nevertheless. All right, let me button it up and we'll close. Let me button it up and we'll close. Just because God was, Jesus was going to reward them didn't mean they didn't have work to do. God always uses the instruments that you have to bring about your blessing. He still used the boat. He still used the fishermen. He still used the net. And he still used their effort. They still had to cast the net. They still had to draw it in. They still had to beckon for help. Because you always need partners and purpose to carry what God has for you. He had to call in the partners. And they all had to take it to shore together. And you know what? Somebody had to clean all them fish. Because no blessing goes unwasted. Blessing doesn't eliminate responsibility. Blessing demands responsibility. Everybody's been praying for God to show up in their life. And they just think he's going to show up like a bellhop, cosmic bellhop. You get on the hotel phone, bellman, can I get a bellman in my room? Hang up. He showed, what can I do for you? God don't work like that. God shows up when he wants to show up. And it might be in the morning time when you've been working your butt off all night long. And you didn't have nothing to show for your work. You might have been doing everything God told you to do. You might have been working in the purpose God gave you to, to work in. But he shows up when he wants to. Here's the beautiful thing about the story. You can go ahead and play. You know, we're, we're about to close. Peter was fishing. James and John were fishing. What they knew is that that's what they do. That's who they are. They're fishermen. 
They didn't necessarily see anything more than that. They didn't see anything past that. They probably had expectations that their kids would be fishermen just like them. Nevertheless, a word showed up in their boat and they forsook all and followed Jesus. He trained them to fish their whole life. They thought they were doing their occupation and really they were training for the next level they had to go to. Don't be afraid, Peter. I know you're a sinner. Sinners are my favorite people to work with. I got your sin. Don't worry about your sin. I'm just glad you know how to fish. Because we got a bunch of men to catch. And I'm going to need your help. Because on that rock, I'm going to build my church. I want to encourage you this morning. You, you may have been toiling and toiling. You may be at Jesus' feet this morning saying, God, I've done all I can do. I'm just asking for a break. God, I just want a break. I'm tired of the work. I'm tired of the struggle. I'm tired of the toil. I'm tired of the disappointment. God, I hate the disappointment. I just need a glimmer of hope. I just need a taste of hope today. God, I'm doing what you told me to do. And I haven't seen nothing. I haven't seen nothing. I just need you today. And Jesus is standing in your boat this morning. And he's telling you, don't be afraid. Don't be scared. Don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I just need you to start over and go deep. I just need you to start over and go deep. I know you put the net on the shelf, but I need you to start over, and I need you to go deep, and I need you to let out the net. If you'll do that, I got the rest. I need somebody to stand to your feet. Just lift your hands. I feel the presence of God in this place. Somebody needed this word. Somebody needed, if that's you, I want you to come to this altar right now. Don't be afraid. Come down to this altar and lift up your hands. Say, God, I need you on my boat right now. Nevertheless, at your word, I'm trusting.